0: Father, I thank you for this day. Thank you for your majestic love and your authority, that you love us and that you're our king. And uh, King Jesus, we come to you now and we ask that you would awaken afresh in our hearts love for you, that you would stir us up to want to know you more, I pray that you would help our hearts to bow today and every day to the reality of who you are. To bow to you with our minds, with our thoughts, with our words, with our actions. May we honor you with our hearts. May we love you. May the deepest desire of our hearts be to know you and be known as yours Please meet us now, Lord Jesus, as we go to your word. I pray that your Holy Spirit would stir in our hearts. Give me wisdom as I speak. Help me to be clear. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bible or a pew Bible, I'd like you to turn to Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21. Matthew, chapter 21. Now, Matthew is the first book in the New Testament of the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's one of the Gospels. And this morning, we are celebrating together and reflecting on what has become known as Palm Sunday throughout church history. Palm Sunday, or the beginning of what's called Holy Week on on the church's annual calendar. The week, Holy Week, is the week leading up to the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. On Palm Sunday, we see that Jesus enters the capital city of Jerusalem with huge crowds of people waving palm branches and saying, Hosanna, save us please. Later in the week, he celebrates the Passover, the Last Supper, with his disciples on Thursday. That night, he's betrayed by Judas and arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's tried early in the morning and crucified on Friday, and he rises again Sunday morning. That's going to be the focus next Sunday. But this morning, we're focusing on Palm Sunday, as recorded by Matthew. And as we go through Matthew's record of the events, there's going to be two other key Bible passages from the Old Testament That we are going to look at together. Zechariah 9 and Psalm 118, both of which are quoted in Matthew 21. So here's the roadmap ahead of us for today. First, in Matthew 21, we're going to look at the arrival of Israel's king, the arrival of the king. Second, we'll look at Zechariah 9 and we'll see the king's arrival predicted. And then third, we'll look at Psalm 118, and we'll see the king's arrival celebrated. So again, the arrival of Israel's king, the king's arrival predicted, and the king's arrival celebrated. So we'll start with point one in Matthew 21. I'm going to start reading in verse 1 and read up through verse 11 with just a few comments along the way. As they approached Jerusalem... The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So they're, they're coating the road with palm branches so that the donkey's feet won't touch the ground. It's, they're getting to the, prepare the way for a king. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So as I read this passage this morning, um, and as I've been reading through it during this week, my, my first impression was and has, has always been, wow, Jesus causes quite a stir in Jerusalem. His arrival in Jerusalem going into the week of his death was the equivalent of a cannonball in a kiddie pool. We used to try that growing up. Uh, We would bring our picnic table over next to our kiddie pool and we would do belly flops and cannonballs, right? Jesus shows up in Jerusalem and he causes a huge splash. It would be like the president of the United States visiting Granville, right? except Jerusalem was at the heart of the nation it was the capital city of Israel and Jerusalem was packed with people from all over the empire and all over the region who were getting ready to celebrate the passover and here comes Jesus riding in on a donkey in verses 10 and 11, the whole city is stirred up and everybody's asking, who is this? Like, what's this big stir? And the crowds with Jesus and those accompanying him into the city tell them it's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And yet, Jesus, he's far more than just a prophet, as the crowd knows. They're, They're following him and they're saying, Hosanna to the son of David. And they're singing songs of celebration from Psalm 118. Now, Here's something you must know about Jerusalem to be able to begin to understand this triumphal entry story and why the people were so excited. Jerusalem was the capital city of the nation of Israel. It was ultimately the city of the Davidic kings. The kings in the line of David. Years before, in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 7, we learn that God had made a huge promise to the first king David that one of David's sons would come and would be the long-awaited Messiah for the Jewish people. In 2 Samuel 7, verse 14 and following, God says that he would be called the son of david would be called god's son i will be a father to him and he will be my son he's going to reign on an eternal throne later passages of the bible develop this and say that this davidic king he's going to lead a new exodus from god's people he's going to be a king on an eternal throne all nations are going to be blessed through him they're going to bow down before him he's going to bring peace and blessing to the whole world. He's going to reign from sea to sea in righteousness and justice, and we could go on and on and on about all these promises. The whole Old Testament of our Bible literally vibrates with these hope-filled expectations and promises that all hang on the coming of this king, this son of David, and now he's come. Jesus, the son of David, has arrived, and as he marches into Jerusalem, expectations have never been higher. At that moment, the throne in Jerusalem was empty, and it had been empty for a long time David's throne was empty. Rome was ruling Israel, the brutal Roman Empire. And before that, it had been a whole host of people, the Greeks, the Persians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians. There, Israel was a mess because of their sin. They needed the Davidic king to come, and they thought he was coming here to throw down the gauntlet. Defeat Rome. But as we'll see in a few minutes, the Jews are in for a bit of a letdown. We'll see that especially next week. Um, Well, I I mean, Good Friday, where their king is crucified. There's the Jesus we want, and there's the Jesus we need. The Jews want a Savior who will save them from Roman oppression and who will have the slogan, make Israel great again, or something Like that. But Jesus is a Savior whose salvation goes far deeper than salvation from the Roman Empire. It goes right to the heart of their problem sin. One day when Jesus returns, he will bring peace to Israel and to all nations. But in his first coming, Jesus comes to bring peace between humans and our Creator. God by dealing with our sin problem. The nation of Israel was deeply flawed, deeply sinful. But no more sinful than we are, according to the Bible. And we see this in the very next section of Matthew. There Jesus' triumphal entry in verse 12 and following it lands him at the temple of Israel. The temple was supposed to be the Holy place in Israel, the meeting place between God and His people, all throughout the Old Testament. we don't have time to develop this or go there, but the, the, the temple, is, and especially the Holy of Holies, is actually pictured as the, the throne of God. It's like he, he, he's seated in the heaven. Heaven is your throne, Earth is your footstool. Where's his footstool? The Ark of the Covenant. God is pictured as seated at heaven with his feet resting on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. The holy of holies. This is the picture. Where's God's throne? It's at the temple. That's where he reigns as king. And here Jesus comes to the the temple and he calls it a den of robbers. And he starts throwing tables over. The people had made the holy place into a place of thievery. The religious leaders had. The good people In the words of the prophet Malachi, the Lord who they were seeking would suddenly come to his temple. Yay, the Lord's coming, Hosanna. And he would be like a refiner's fire. And he will purify his people. Jesus has come to town as Messiah, yet he's not the Messiah that the Jews were expecting. He was the Messiah that they needed They had a heart problem far greater than a Roman problem. And Jesus was the Messiah that Zechariah, the prophet, had told them about so long ago. And that brings us to the second point of the message this morning. The king's arrival predicted in Zechariah 9. What's this whole riding in on a donkey thing? Zechariah 9, verses 9 to 10. The prophet Zechariah writes, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off and he will speak peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now now I hope you understand a little bit more of why the Jews were freaking out when Jesus comes riding down from the Mount of Olives on a donkey. They're super excited. Hopes are running high. Chapter 9 of Zechariah, we just don't have time to get into it all. But it, it, and it can be kind of complex, too. It is kind of complex, how it all works together. But it goes on to talk about how God's going to strengthen his people. And he's going to give them victory over their enemies through his Messiah. The Jews, though, in Jerusalem, they thought that Jesus, God's Messiah, was about to help beat the bad guys that they perceived as their enemies in that day. I mean, they're thinking a Messiah coming down from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem, a Messiah who can raise the dead? I mean, you have an invincible army if your general can raise your dead soldiers to life, right? I mean, Rome has no chance against a king who can raise the dead. You'll never run out of soldiers. Zechariah 9 concludes with these words. The Lord their God will save them in that day as the flock of his people. For they are the stones of a crown. They're like the stones of a crown sparkling in his land. So again, according to Zechariah, God is going to be like a shepherd to Israel and he's going to save them. How? He's going to save them as a king riding on a donkey into Jerusalem. All this is true The Israelites were getting excited, but there was a lot more about Zechariah's prophecies that the Jews of Jesus' day would have done very well to pay careful attention to. In Zechariah 9-14, the phrase, on that day, shows up again and again to refer to a future day when God would save his people through the Messiah. So on that day, this is going to happen. And on that day, this is going to happen. And on that day, this is going to happen. And, and as we've talked about before, I know from the pulpit here, that the, the prophets get a lot of mileage with this whole idea of the day of the Lord, the day of salvation. They pile a lot of things in there. Jesus is going to die for the sins of the people on the day of salvation. Jesus is going to defeat all their enemies on the day. The, the day of the Lord is basically summarying, a summary for the days of Jesus, the days of the Messiah. It refers to the times when he first walked the earth all the way up to when he returns. And the timing of these prophecies can get a little fuzzy. Which comes first? Which comes after? The prophecies often blend things together that will take place during the first coming of Jesus and the second coming. And they kind of speak of them all Jumbled together, and we don't get it clear until Jesus comes. Yes, God will deliver his people from their enemies. In Zechariah 9, and Zechariah 10, and Zechariah 12, there is deliverance coming. The enemies of God will be punished, and he will bring peace on earth one day. We don't see that yet, do we? But one day there will be peace, and he will be king. We will see his rule and reign, establishing peace and justice from sea to sea. But not before he's valued as only 30 pieces of silver in Zechariah eleven thirteen. That was the price Judas sold him for. Not before he's pierced by his own people in Zechariah 12, verse 10. The shepherd must be struck in Zechariah 13, verse 7. So that a fountain for cleansing from sin would be opened in Zechariah 13, verse 1. The Messiah has to die. He's got to die as a ransom for many to save his people from their sins. Yes, victory is coming, but victory over sin must happen first. The Israelites have a deeper problem even than the Romans and then their oppressors. But now let's look for a bit at what the people are singing as Jesus rides up to Jerusalem. The king of Zechariah is coming, and they're singing from Psalm 118, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The third point today, the king's arrival celebrated. Psalm 118. Now, just like with Zechariah, we're just going to scratch the surface of Psalm 118. There's a lot that can be said about this psalm. If we were preaching a whole sermon on it, I'd read the whole thing through and we'd go verse by verse, but we're not. The psalm is a song of praise, thanking God for his deliverance from enemies, for his past salvation. So in verse fourteen, the Psalmist sings this, Psalm one eighteen fourteen. He says, The Lord, the Lord is my strength and my song, he also has become my salvation. Every Israelite worth their salt would have known where that was from. Exodus fifteen, verse two. They're delivered from misery Egypt in a miraculous way. And they stand on the banks of the Red Sea as the waters have gone back over the, the Egyptians and they sing a song celebrating the deliverance. The Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. So the psalmist is describing his own salvation many years later as, a, as like a new exodus. God saved me. He's... Freed me from my enemies just like he freed my people so long ago. And after the psalmist has been delivered in the psalm, he heads for Jerusalem just like Jesus is headed for the gates of the earthly Jerusalem in Matthew 21. In verses 19 to 26 of Psalm 119, I'm going to read them for us, the psalmist says this, Open to me the gates of righteousness, I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. So the king was in trouble. God saved him. He's been saved through an exodus. And now he's headed to the gates of righteousness, to the city of God. The righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to the Lord. For you answered me, and you have become my salvation. So here again, the psalmist is celebrating God's salvation of him. The fact that God has delivered him from death. And just like the biblical story of the exodus functions as a picture of the psalmist's salvation, so the psalmist's own deliverance in Psalm 118, it starts to function as a picture of how God will save a future person, the Messiah, Jesus, the Son of David. Just like God would deliver the psalmist from death, so God is about to deliver Jesus from death in Jerusalem. He'll raise Jesus from the dead. And after Jesus' deliverance, just like the psalmist, Jesus is going to enter the gates of the true righteous city. Not the earthly Jerusalem that the psalmist entered, but that Jerusalem wasn't very righteous. You know, think about it. Uh, open the gates of righteousness, I'll enter through them, Jesus. It doesn't quite fit the Jerusalem that Jesus is headed towards, does it? Jerusalem is not a righteous city, tragically. But the Jerusalem above that Paul talks about in Galatians 4, that John the Apostle talks about in Revelation 21, that heavenly city is a righteous city. There is a Jerusalem above that this, the earthly Jerusalem is only a shadow of, a picture of. And there... Jesus will ascend after his death, after his exodus, his salvation from death. Jesus, he actually calls the cross an exodus in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus, when he's saved from the cross, from the cross through resurrection, from the grave, he'll enter the gates of the righteous city, but not Jerusalem. That city killed him. He'll enter the new heavens. And the new earth. And in that heavenly city, Jesus is going to sit on a throne at God's right hand, on David's throne. The things of earth, the temple, Jerusalem, they're shadows, in the words of Paul. Shadows are copies of the things above. As David said about Jesus in Psalm 110, he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. But before Jesus goes and sits on the throne in heaven, before he ascends the gates of righteousness, before he enters the heavenly Jerusalem to sit at God's right hand, he's got to be rejected in the earthly Jerusalem. In Psalm 118, the psalmist goes on to speak of that rejection in verse 22. He writes, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The Old Testament idea of a stone being rejected by the builders, a stone they're like, ah, this doesn't fit. We'll toss it out. That idea is regularly applied to Jesus in the New Testament. Again, we don't have time to to develop this whole theme. But the Messiah, he's a stone. He's, He's like a stone rejected by man, but he becomes the cornerstone of a new temple in a new Jerusalem, in a new creation, which will come down with Jesus to earth one day when Jesus returns. That's what John says in Revelation 20. I saw a new heavens and a new earth and a new Jerusalem decorated coming down from the sky. It is a city that Jesus is preparing for all who trust Him, and He will bring it one day. This is the day when He returns. And then the psalmist says, This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. You ever heard that song, the kids' song? This is the day. This is the day. It's from Psalm 118. It's not just talking about the day you get up. It's talking about the day of the Lord, the day of salvation, the day when Jesus comes. We beseech you, O Lord, verses 26 and 27. O Lord, do save. That's Hosanna. Hosanna, Lord. We beseech you, O Lord. We beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. So that's the verse that the people are singing. Again, the people in Matthew 21, they're singing, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Again, in Psalm 118, there's a blessed one here who enters through the gates of righteousness, the city gates of Jerusalem, and he will bring the salvation of God. And in Matthew 21, they're crying, Hosanna. Save us, please, as the righteous son of David heads for the city gates of Jerusalem. We bless you from the house of the Lord, which is where Jesus heads next in Matthew 21. So here we see again. The people of Israel, they're celebrating Jesus as the one who comes in God's name, as God's Davidic king to save them. And then Jesus shows up at the house of the Lord, the temple, and he brings judgment. Because the temple and all the priests, they weren't serving the Lord anymore. They were serving money. They were making the place a market, not a house of prayer It had become a citadel of sin and not the house of God. And so the temple will be replaced by Jesus and the temple that he is bringing. The temple made up not of stones, but of living stones, of believers who put their trust in him. Jesus replaces the temple with you and I if we trust in Jesus Christ. The resurrected Jesus then ascends to heaven where he is preparing for us a city, the new Jerusalem. And one day he will return and heaven and earth will be one. The Jews, they knew that they needed a savior. But they didn't yet understand who Jesus really was or how their king would save them. They didn't realize their temple had a big problem. The sacrifices there could never take away sins. They needed a Savior to come and die for their sins. The temple had a huge problem. Their hearts were not right with the Lord. They needed a Savior who could come and change their hearts as well. And so Jesus, He came. We'll look at that Friday night from Zechariah 12 and some other passages where Jesus comes and dies as a ransom for the people, paying for their sins, defeating their greatest enemy of death. But I want to conclude our time together in the Word this morning by focusing on how similar we are to the Jews of Jesus' day. You see, many of the Jews, they were super excited about Jesus' coming, right? Because the Pharisees weren't. They'd already written him off, but many of the crowds were super excited. They'd had high hopes about what they thought Jesus was going to accomplish for them. They even had all kinds of Bible verses, right, that they thought proved Jesus would come and be the Jesus they wanted him to be, not die for their sins. We don't need that. We want him to fix the problems we see, like Rome and the oppression that we're under. They wanted deliverance from their enemies. But their greatest enemy, again, was not the Roman legions. Their greatest enemy was their own sinful hearts. And it's the same for us today. You see, for each one of us, okay, there's a temptation to believe in the Jesus that we want and not the Jesus who is. And as a church who wants to preach the Bible, our deep desire, my deep desire is to use my sermons, Brian's to use his sermons, to use our singing and our teaching to hold forth to all of us each week the real Jesus, who he really is. And so what I want to do right now, I want to focus on three things that people sometimes want out of Jesus. Three things that people might try to Um, come to church for or approach Jesus for for a while or even for their whole lives and yet still miss the gospel about who Jesus really is and why he came. First, there is a whole host of people and, and I want you to know I'm not like staying here like thinking of you guys. I'm just saying the church in general, okay? If this applies, if anything applies to you, turn to Jesus. That's the point of Bringing these reasons up, but I've been a Christian for a long time. I've been going to church. I've seen so much of these these things, and um, people who want Jesus to be something for them that He's not. And so, first, there's a whole host of people who come to church to find salvation from the effects of sin or the hardships of life in this broken world. Okay, life hurts. I think we can all agree on that. And the longer you live, the more life's going to hurt. And and people see that Christians have something. Maybe joy in the midst of suffering. Stability. Maybe some answers to hard questions. Biblical wisdom. Maybe well-behaved kids. Man, how do you get your kids to do that? Wisdom with money. Christians say they learn those things from Jesus and his word. And so people... Who feel they need help, and then any of those areas, or many more I'm not mentioning here, like addiction, or you, you could go on and on. People have problems, and they see Jesus as the solution, or Christianity as the solution to their their problems. And so they might come to church to see if the Bible can help them out. They come to a a church, they come to a class offered by a church, um, maybe a great class with with good biblical teaching, and they learn helpful things. And and one of at least four things will happen next, so whether they come to a class or a church service or just talk to Christians about Jesus. First, they might try it for a little while, and if they don't see results, then they just walk away from Jesus. Been there, tried that, time for a counselor, time for a drug. Pain from a life broken by the effects of sin done to us and sins that we've done, that kind of pain, it might get us to listen to Jesus for a little while but until it turns into pain over the state of my heart and a deep desire for forgiveness and for a relationship with Jesus, I'm never going to truly understand the gospel. I'm never going to really understand why Jesus came. I just Jesus fixed my problems, and if it doesn't work, then you're not a good Savior. But if you know that your greatest problem is sin, and you realize that Jesus truly forgives sin and you're broken over it, he's always going to be a beautiful Savior no matter what you go through. The second thing that sometimes happens is that people try Christianity for a little while and they do see results from trying these Christian morals. And they say, wow, my life is so much better now that Jesus has taught me these things. And then they go their merry way. Jesus helped them achieve their goals of stability. And uh, he's in their back pocket if they need him in the future. Go to church? Why would I need that? Just like Jesus, church is there to help me feel better if I'm in trouble again. He's, Jesus is like a drug in my medicine cabinet, right next to Prozac. I'm going to go to him when I need it. Or three, they'll go to church, go to a service, and they start getting results. And they might actually huh, plug into church and get you know, baptized and, and become some of the church's strongest advocates of how Jesus can fix your life. I was a mess. Look what, I, look what my life was like. But look what Jesus did. I'm so improved now. Now look, Jesus is in the business of life transformation. Don't get me wrong. If you have a life radically transformed by Jesus, praise God. Praise God. But there's a danger. We can clean up our life through rules and through biblical wisdom and completely miss the gospel that Jesus forgives us from our sins. If you only... so, You know, folks can become great advocates for biblical principles. If you just try Jesus, stick to his methods, do the rules that Jesus gives, and you'll have a better life. It's like, try this drug. It'll help you. It changed my life. You'll never be the same. Many times... You know, these folks really do have a relationship with Jesus, and they just need more help, understanding. Like, go to the deepest issues, too. Don't forget the deepest problem. But sometimes we're just moralists trying to improve ourselves with little Jesus instead of Christians trusting in the grace and love of Jesus. Jesus isn't a drug that you try to help improve your life. He's a king that you bow to forever forever. Jesus' laws, his word, it's not multiple choice. Following him isn't like some self-help class. Eh, take some, leave some. No, it's a zero-sum game. Jesus demands your everything. Take him or leave him. You're for him or you're against him. Do not dabble in Christianity. He laid, He's a savior. And he's offered us his everything. But he demands everything our all as well. So classes, to help people in practical ways, sermons with biblical wisdom, they're important, but we need to know their limits. Just like all the letters of the New Testament, we've got to root all the rules of Jesus and living life His way. We've got to root it in the gospel of Jesus. We love Him, Because he first loved us. We serve him because he served us his life. We show grace to others even when they don't deserve it. Because he showed us grace when we didn't deserve it. We forgive people because we've been forgiven. We hope because we know his promise to bring a new creation does not fail. And the fourth thing that sometimes happens is that an individual finds some measure of help following Jesus... And listening to sermons, and they start coming to church and they start getting involved, but then everything in their life hits the fan. And life gets really hard again. And they say it didn't work, it wasn't real. The reality is, they believed a lie about the Christian life that everything would get better. Sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it gets you killed, depending on where you live. Christianity was just like a passing fad, like a diet you try for a little while and then give up after a few months. Jesus isn't a diet. He's the bread of life. He's living water for those who are fainting with thirst. To know Jesus is to live truly. So those are, that's a category of responses to Jesus where we're coming to him for, for felt needs, but we, we aren't broken over our sin and our greatest need. The second reason people walk into the doors of a church is because they want Jesus to help them accomplish their goals. Growing up, I saw this a few times uh, in our, our home church. You know, a girl, godly Christian girl would meet a young guy who totally didn't love the Lord. And all of a sudden, he'd be in church. Why? He wanted her. He didn't want Jesus oh, he might put on a good show for a while, raise his hands, sing songs loud, okay? But, deep down, his real motivation was what he thought that Jesus could get him, not Jesus himself. Now, I know a dear brother in the Lord, Joel Sears. We rode in the car with him together together yesterday to a men's conference. Joel Sears was that guy. And Jesus got him, because Jesus can, Jesus can go around our twisted motives, right? He, he came to church after Debbie, this beautiful Christian girl, and Jesus saved him radically, and he's still following Jesus, and his six kids love the Lord. I mean, Joel Sears is a testimony to the grace of God, but far more often, that doesn't happen. And I feel like I can say that from lots of experience. Another example would be a politician who knows, I mean, look, any politician worth their salt knows that it pays to be just a little bit religious, right? Date some sort of church for a little while because you'll get the evangelical vote or the Catholic vote. I mean, you can just read through the history of American politics. Atheists don't get elected in general, you know. They're, they're at least somewhat religious. It's, you know, it's, it's um, a good idea. Jesus isn't the king on the throne of their life. No, he's just a pawn in their game of life. A more subtle version of this might happen when people attend Bible college and become leaders in the church, all because they want to use the knowledge about the Bible and about Christianity to get them in front of people in positions of influence and control. That motivation can be really sneaky. You know, I battle it in my own heart. Why do I want to be a pastor? be really honest, I think growing up, I would tell people I wanted to be a pastor at the age of 12, 13, 14. Oh, wow, you're such a godly young man. You know, the buttons bursting off, filled my head with pride. I'm not saying people shouldn't have encouraged me. I'm just saying it was an arrogant motivation, but it was mingled with grace. God did have a call on my life. But we're trying to use the church to get something we want, the praise of man a feeling of being a good person. Others might try Jesus a little while because you know they want the benefits of a church family. People who are always there for you, sign me up. That might work for a little while, but guess what? Family hurts you. You ever been hurt by your family before? I have. Church families, we can hurt each other. And if Jesus isn't the reason that you're a part of the church, if you're not a part of the family of Jesus because of Jesus, then you'll be tempted to leave, to give up, when the perceived benefits of being connected to the church fail. We could go on and on, but I just want to tackle the, the third final error that I see as, as quite tragic. A lot of people, I think, come to Jesus because they've been intellectually convinced in their heads that they need Jesus to get them out of hell. Okay, Jesus will get me out of hell. He's real. They, they, they believe he really did rise from the dead. You proved it. I, I, I believe you. I believe God created the world. That makes sense. I'm intellectually convinced. So I better believe in him, because I don't want to go to that place. But they have no interest in the Savior who intends to get the hell out of their hearts. And I mean that very seriously. James in the New Testament says that our tongues are could can be set on fire by hell. All right? And Jesus wants to change our hearts. He doesn't want our hearts to still love sin. He wants us to be convinced that we need Change in the deepest core of who we are. But many have become convinced. Again, the Bible's true. The resurrection happened. I'll hedge my bets. I'll bet on Jesus. Because then I get a get-out-of-hell-free card in my pocket. And I'm good on Judgment Day. No, Christianity is not just intellectual assent to a few facts about Jesus. It's trust in Jesus. It's love for Jesus. It's worship of Jesus. And so I want to ask you, as I've been asking myself this week as well, why am I a Christian? Why am I a Christian? And I pray that for each one of you here, the reason you claim to be a Christian, if you do, is that because you know and you believe at the deepest core of who you are, That you are a sinner in need of a Savior who alone can pay for your sin. Who alone is in the business of transforming hearts to know and love him. Jesus is not a drug that you can try for a while to see if he helps you with an out of control life. He's not a buddy that you can phone occasionally to get some help when you're in a pinch. He's not a crutch to lean on as you try to accomplish your own dreams. Jesus is not a life coach who's trying to help you reach deep inside to find the better you that's been there all along. Jesus is not an ATM, always willing to dole out freebies to those with enough faith. He's not a get-out-of-hell-free card. Jesus is the king of the universe. He demands total allegiance. He demands all of you, and he demands all of me. And if we don't give all of ourselves to him, if we hold back and just kind of dabble with the Jesus thing, we're going to be miserable. More miserable than if we were totally devoted to rebellion. In many cases. We don't try Jesus for a while. No, we bow to Jesus. We believe that he really need we really need his forgiveness for not actually loving God with all our hearts. And we trust that his sacrifice on the cross it paid for our sins totally. We say in salvation we say this. We say Jesus, I'm done with me. I hate my pride. I hate when I get angry at others. I hate my lust. I hate my greed. And I know that it needs to be paid for. And I ask you to wash me clean. I thank you for paying my debt. Please save me. I repent. And then we devote our life to the continual process of turning from sin in repentance to faith in Jesus This is Christianity 101. It's so simple. Jesus died to save you from your sins. But it's so hard to see ourselves as truly sinful and truly needing his salvation every day. In Matthew chapter 20, verses 28 to 34 we get a picture of two men who have a right response to Jesus. Two blind men. As Jesus is walking by, and the crowd is gathering, these two blind men, they're crying out to Jesus. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus turns and he says, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, Jesus, we want to see And Jesus heals their eyes. They see him, and they follow him. They follow him. That's a picture of discipleship for us. And so let's pray. And as I pray, I just want you to join me in asking Jesus to just give us a fresh, a greater glimpse of who he is, who he really is, not just who we want him to be. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you're the king. I thank you that you are the son of David and that you have mercy on people like us. Mercy means love that we don't deserve, love that we didn't earn, and you give it to us on the cross. If only we call to you. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus, we want you to help us see. Open the eyes of our hearts wider today and help us see you for who you really are. I pray that when we tell others about you, it wouldn't just be trying to get them to believe facts about some Abstract person who lived 2,000 years ago. I pray that you would help us to say, Have you met my friend Jesus? He died for me. He's my king. Please, Lord, stir our hearts with love for the real Jesus. Help us to feel sad about our sin, to feel broken. And to keep turning to Jesus for forgiveness, for help to live for him. Help us to be like the blind men who as soon as their eyes are opened, they follow Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.